gonna fuck with me today, no? You're gonna be good to me today, yeah? You're good, you're good, you're Mike. If you're really struggling to find something to be grateful for, why does this already sound like a better help ad? This is not an ad. This is just a random beginning of an episode. If you're struggling, with something to be grateful for and you have nice teeth you don't have like holes in your mouth where the food gets constantly stuck and then you need to like get it out with your tongue and it's just like you making out with yourself all day long and you're kind of like mm, i kind of like this but also i really don't because i just want normal teeth yeah be grateful for your teeth <laughs> also recommend me a dentist i really need to fix this i need to stop thinking about what's going on inside my mouth on daily basis. If, however, your teeth are fucked like mine, well then, maybe you have already had a haircut. Because I'm recording this on the 11th of April, which means tomorrow in the UK there's a big lift in, like, lockdown stuff. So, you know, like, hairdressers are gonna open, barbers gonna open, you know, outdoors of the restaurants, but I'm more hyped of just getting this hair tamed. So maybe you have already had yours by the time this episode is out. And then be grateful for that. Okay. <laughs> now snap back out of the cheetah chatter. Go into the podcasting mode. Hi, this is by all means necessary. You are never lost. You are never lost. It's just a weird intro every single time by me, Maya, your host. Hi. So, if you have seen the title. You know why we are all here. It's it's one of the biggest cases in consensual homicide. I wanted to cover the biggest one. Like, I wanted to go for, you know, the one that had cannibalism. The German army Meves or Meves, however you freaking pronounce that. But then I actually listened to another podcast cover it. And I was like, I, I don't, I, I just don't have the stomach for this this week. I'm sorry, but this just... This needs another level of, like, stomach clearing. But that is not to diminish in the slightest the case we have ahead. Because this one, it has some of my favorite things. Like PDSM. Like people doing sneaky things. It ends in death, though. So, yeah, that's not, like, my favorite thing out of everything. So let's go into the expression of the day. And then dive into the case of Sharon Lopatka. Expression of the day that I am recording this on and you're listening to this too is every nook and cranny. <laughs> Which I put, if the expression sounds ancient, it most definitely is. So every nook and cranny means when you say you're looking in all the possible areas or you're being like super thorough about something. What is the word? Thorough. How do you say foreign? You see? It's different. In my head, my mouth makes a different shape. Hey, don't, don't, don't fuck with me. I went to the logoped on. <laughs> I don't know the word in English. The speech therapist, the logoped yeah. I went there when I was little because I couldn't even pronounce my last name. I could not pronounce certain letters. So I, I would know pronunciations. <laughs> Can you imagine how funny it is? It's literally me being like four or five and my parents are like, oh, she even can't pronounce her last name. She can't say sh, ch, j. <laughs> she just can't say random letters. I think we should get that checked out. <laughs> she should be able to pronounce her own last name. Good on them. So the expression every nook and cranny exists since the 1400s. And in 1400s, these two words were very commonly used. Nook was used to mean a tiny hidden place, and cranny meant a crevice or a small crack. And you would see such expression in poetry by Tennyson from 1869. The poem was actually called Flower in a Crannied Wall. And the line of the poem is, is a masterpiece. Flower in a crannied wall, I pluck you out of crannies. You know, today in your English class, they would say don't repeat the same word like in <laughs> the same sentence or just in the two consecutive sentences. But no, Tennyson did not give no fucks. The oldest mention of the infamous expression dated in 1803 when there was a book called Scottish Scenery by James Creary that was published. Let me, let me read you out this, this beautiful piece of work. Yet how endure the winter's surly rage, the deadly nipping of the northern blast, the piercing frost, the mass of drifted snow that smooths the valley with a higher ridge and every winding nook and cranny fills beautiful i have no respect for nothing then in that same article which is probably like idioms.com there are different examples of like the sentences that were 
real, like from the news, the broadcasts, the magazines and shit online, where people have used nook and cranny, and they just made me laugh, because New York Times, this is directly from the New York Times, explore every nook and cranny of President Obama's federal budget proposal. Then from wobmam.com, whatever that is, vacuum all nooks and crannies within bedroom. Then from southernliving.com, measuring 13 times 14 feet, this sleek kitchen takes advantage of every possible nook and cranny. And then, as always, I just dive into the, the case of the day without telling you that I'm actually just switching freaking topics. The case of Sharon Lopatka I'm talking to you about today was actually the first case where a suspect was placed in custody and then later convicted, mostly based on the evidence coming from emails. We are going digital, we are going 1996. You know who else has emails? Your girl here, podbam at gmail.com. You can always email me your opinions. Or different cases and the motives that everybody else thinks are a bit out there, but you are like, no, 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 this person actually killed them because of this. Yeah, boy. By all means necessary. You can also hit me up with those same brilliant thoughts from your own mind at DeadBamPod on Twitter and Instagram. And now let's go into one of the first, one of the mortuaries, what? <laughs> Martyrs? <laughs> Is that what you wanted to say? I think it's pioneers, Maya, but just go on mortuaries, martyrs, misogynists, myopic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the pioneer cases out there of somebody being convicted for consensual homicide and also that somebody being convicted because of the dirty motherfucking emails. Let's go. Before diving into the discovery, let's run through some terms that will be used during this, and especially when we discuss the psychology of it and the motives. So consider this like your legend. You know how you in geography you had maps and then you had legend to clarify what's what? Well, now pay attention because this is it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why is everything so dramatic, Maya? Everything is super dramatic and you can't miss a single piece of information. Okay, pronounce the word. Auto-assassinophilia. So, auto and then assassin and then philia. What could it mean? Well, obviously, it's a paraphilia. Ever since episode 3, one of my favorite words. Comes from Greek. Autos meaning self, assassin, and then philia. So, what, what could that mean? Well, it's paraphilia, where a person likes to be sexually aroused by the risk of being assassin slash killed. And this particular fetish doesn't necessarily mean the person has to be in a life-threatening situation. It may also just arise from dreams or fantasies of being killed during a sexual act. And then a term that I will not mention later, but I just found it interesting because it came in the same article, because of course their pervy minds also thought, okay, so what is the same for like the person committing this assassination during the last act? Like what is it called when somebody has an orgasm because of this particular situation? And that is called erotophonophilia. Again, Greek, eros means love learning so many words and expressions today, phonane, to murder, and philia. Again, the fetish. And this sentence is something I have never ever thought I will read, but erotophonophiliac's orgasm coincides with the expiration of the partner. I feel like they were going for like, you know, they see that partner is an object anyways, so that object has now expired. I don't know, they were just doing like a poetic thing, but yeah, it is once your partner dies during this act and you have an orgasm because of that situation. Another term you should be aware of in this legend is here because we have somebody using the internet in the early days. And Sharon really, what you will find out is enjoyed the fact that she could be whoever she wanted to be on the internet. So she posed as multiple different people under different handles, different names. And writers have labeled this situation as this one and named it Mardi Gras phenomenon. It was actually named that by the psychologists. 
And I looked into like, okay, why would that be? Like, you know, I don't want to like offend people celebrating Mardi Gras. But I think it's more of a historic reference because dating back to pagan Rome, masking was a way to hide your identity and your intentions. So these masks would be worn on Mardi Gras, both like in Venice, in Italy, and then also like in New Orleans. Wherever you celebrated, people would like properly dress up. And on that day, you could be whoever the hell you wanted to be. And that's where this phenomenon originated from. Now that you have the legend, let's look into the map of this case. For months, Sharon Lopatka has been exchanging emails with Robert Glass, trying to get him to agree to fulfill her fantasy of getting killed during a sexual act. In October 1996, they finally decided to meet. This event ended in what people will later refer to as one of the first instances of consensual homicide. What were their motives? On October 13, 1996, Sharon waited for her husband Victor to leave his home to go to work and then she just left a note behind and has taken her car and driven it to this train station to take the train to Baltimore from Maryland where she was living at the time. So her husband is at work and he is telling his friends that his wife is in Georgia visiting some friends. But then he returns home after work that evening and he retrieves this note on the counter and he just reads it and he's like, this doesn't sound like my wife went somewhere with her friends. Because the note reads, if my body is never retrieved, don't worry, know that I am at peace. He doesn't initially panic, but he immediately goes to her computer just to cover all bases before he actually calls the police to go through her search history. And he saw some emails, and these emails are with, like, anybody and everything. Like, we'll talk about Sharon's internet history later. But it was everything from doing ad copy for different websites to, like, talking about her sexual fantasies with people on the internet. And in particular, the most recent email history is with this handle, Slowhand. I will come to slow hand later. Don't make me laugh right now. So, he knows now she's either with her friends in Georgia or she is with this slow hand, whoever the hell that is. So, he actually doesn't file a missing persons report. He doesn't actually ring the police for about a week. Only on October the 20th, he calls the police and actually tells them, Okay, hey, my wife should have been back by now, and uh, I also discovered these weird sets of emails between her and this person named Slowhand. So the police comes into his home, and they obviously have to take a look and take the computer drive. So they take probably like that whole like hardware box, <laughs> remember those? Just like take it all into the police, mount it into the police car, Bring them into the police station. This is how I'm imagining it. And then they scan themselves through these emails. And the police investigators are looking at this a bit less innocently from her husband. Like, they immediately spot certain patterns. Like, that in all of the emails, for months, Sharon has been looking for somebody to fulfill her fantasy of getting killed. They realize that she has started chatting with other people on this particular topic and trying to convince them that she really wanted this, and then certain people would back out. But then there was Slohan. There was one man who seemed like he was up for that particular task. This is when investigators pull his IP address, because I assume it was a lot easier to do it back then. There weren't such things as VPN, also there weren't such things as laptops, so he couldn't just be moving a lot around. Like, it was a static freaking computer inside his house. And by doing this, they find the man was Robert Glass, and he was a computer analyst from North Carolina, and he in a way had a similar light that Sharon had. He would spent most of his time online, going through very similar types of websites. That is when he wasn't in office, when he wasn't doing his work. 
his work was I have read this 20 times and it still makes zero sense in my head so help me out his work included programming tax rolls and keeping track of the amount of vehicle gas consumption in the county that he lived in what was he doing because <laughs> everybody's like oh yeah he was like on computers he was like some computer analyst but what tax rolls like the actual rolls of tax that's what he was programming and keeping track of the amount of vehicle gas consumption sounds like a fucking dead job just reading it let alone like doing it so of course he was gonna have a secret life duh and he had a secret life because his wife one day discovered what he was doing because quite like in the first story of the month like with chelsea martinez and that jason isbit guy the wife kind of noticed, like, this guy is literally just spending all of his time when he's home at this computer. What the hell is he doing? Because he had children as well. The wife, Sherry, actually left with their kids a few months before Robert offered to, you know, provide his services to Sharon. The way I like to imagine it is the deals cops actually traveled miles and miles between Maryland and Baltimore, but they probably alerted, like, the police force on the location. But hey... Some police unit was asked and delegated to monitor this guy's house. And they're literally like, this is the most boring job. Like, what have I gotten myself in the police force for? Because they're just sitting outside. He literally goes to work. He returns. He leads, like, this quiet life because he's spending it online. Like, unless you're literally right there monitoring what he's doing right now, you won't find anything shady because he knows how to hide his tracks. So, and also it probably takes time for him to arrange for something like this to happen again. So these cops are like probably radioing their own station being like, hey, like, uh, I'm so sorry, but this is like boring as hell. Can we obtain a search warrant? Just in any instance, can you go through these emails and actually search for like, I'm going to do this to you in this house exactly like this? And in the emails, trust me, I tried to find them online. There are none. I would have probably been scarred for life, but I still wanted to see exactly the level of consent we have in these emails. You know what I'm interested in. I'm not into the previous stuff. So they couldn't find anything connecting to the method of death. But they found certain items that he mentioned he might use and then she was agreeing to it. And we know that because the police then actually managed to obtain the search warrant. And the search warrant described the items that needed to be seized from his house. Like any items indicative of physical torture, including leather, straps, wire, rope, wooden frames, knives, skewers, pins, or irons. The police now finally has the access to the house. And they actually go in and they find bondage equipment. But they also find something that they didn't really think that they will, which is super disturbing, which is child pornography magazines. Who the fuck sold child pornography magazines? Like, somebody was actually allowed to publish this kind of shit. They also find a magnum pistol, several computer discs, and different sex toys, and just, like, things in trash that maybe belong to either Sharon or him or would have her DNA on it. But still, no Sharon, no body, no nothing, because they have the search warrant for inside the house. But there's this one officer that probably just left the scene and was like, oh, this is actually like too much, like the child pornography magazines, like nobody signed up for that. And he's just lurking around his garden, like lurking around his property. And he sees this pile of dirt. It looks like somebody dug a hole and just turned the dirt inside out. He's like, okay, this is odd. So he calls other police officers to kind of join him to dig this a bit and see, is there a body in there? And when two officers start digging about two and a half feet down, they hit a knee. And Robert Glass was actually at work then. So the police officer, as soon as they hit him, they knew who this was. They knew what was going on. So they immediately dispatched another police force to see if he's at work and hope that he's actually at work and hasn't like fled the country. But luckily he was. And this is when they arrested Robert Glass. 
At this point, because the body wasn't heavily decomposed, they think that they have Sharon Lopatka with a rope that was still around her neck in that shallow grave. But they still need to conduct examination. I mean, what are the chances that he didn't kill her? But they still have to actually examine the body, see that his DNA is on it, and manage to form a conviction for this particular murder. But in the meantime, they arrest him for the child pornography. And before we pick up from here, let's discuss how this crime came about in the first place. Because we simply gotta talk about that slow hand, we we have to. Well, this article chose to give him a nickname, chose to call him Bobby. I shall not do that, because Robert Glass was a piece of shit. He was married to his wife for more than a decade. But then, all of a sudden, as I mentioned, the wife noticed he was spending all of his free time on the internet. And he had children, so he should have been at least a bit involved, like... At least for the sake of the children. So, one of those days, when he is at work, she opens up his email account and sees these raw, violent and disturbing messages that he sent under the pseudonyms Toyman or Slowhand. And as a result of this, after 15 years of marriage, she files for divorce. Before even talking about his handles that he used online, his internet names... Do you know what wild this thing is throughout all of this? That everybody went to their emails first. Like, how much different did even, like, 10 or 20 years just make in history? Like, now, the emails will be the last place you check. You first go to, like, their most used social media. You literally have a freaking iPhone that tells you what social media they use the most, and then you just go there, because that's where the dirt is. Back then, there was literally nothing else. It's like, everything is gonna be stored in these emails. Also, I think, if I remember right, you couldn't even, like, unsubscribe from shit. Like, if you were on just some website, site and stuff like they, they would just send you spam like hey this person mentioned you in the chat and you're like oh my god this is like so embarrassing i don't want anybody to see my email like how do i unsubscribe from this shit i just want to have that limited to that particular website yeah i used to see in <laughs> the internet but also how creepy the rise of chat rooms that happened when i was like you know early teenagers so like early 2000s and like you know i would chat with all these people online who again could be whoever the hell they told you to be like me and my friend were like oh yeah we are chatting with like some hot guys of our age they're probably pedophiles they were most probably like grown-ass men Luckily that we have, like, enough fucking mind power not to actually meet with these people that we chatted online. Like, yeah, let's just pretend that we are, like, these people. It's like 12-year-olds just pretending that they are, like, I don't know, dominatrixes. No, we didn't. The one particular creep that I'm convinced was pedophile, even now, like, even back then I was like, yeah, he, he, he is a grown-ass man. He is not a 14-year-old boy. He is not. Because he said he's cleansing women from sins. He said he was a pope. <laughs> cleansing people from sins. And we were like, hey, we want some sins to be forgiven. God, take me away from the naughtiest cringe. They're just take <laughs> Just God, take me away from my own teenage cringe. About a month before she was murdered, Sharon came across a man that used this handle, Slowhand, online. He said he was a good lover because he was born on Valentine's Day and can fulfill, and would fulfill as such, most of her twisted desires. Now, I know there are plenty of things in this story that are disturbing, uh, but this is mine. Um... <laughs> Like, as a woman, when you see a handle of slow hand, you're like, wow, that's hot. There's nothing worse than a slow hand. There's nothing worse. This is not about edging situation. No. Is there anything worse about a slow hand? Nobody just wants to edge forever. Nobody wants to fucking wait there for an orgasm. It's already, for women, it's already too long of a time. Nobody wants a slow hand. I digress. If a man tells you he's a good lover... He must be. He's born on Valentine's Day. It's a legit argument. It's a solid argument. If a man tells you he's a good lover, trust that man. Trust him. Trust him. He, he would know. He knows. He uses his slow hand. He knows if he's a good lover or not. Ah, this story, this part just always cracked me up. It's like, come on. 
<laughs> this guy logic actually worked on like different women. He's like, yeah, I'm a good lover. I'm born on Valentine's Day. Makes no sense. The two of them now start chatting. Also, when he got divorced from his wife, he actually moved to a trailer in North Carolina, which is just so... It's like toy box killer vibes. It's disgusting. And the two of them, over the course of just six weeks, exchanged nearly 900 emails, many of them including sexually graphic motives and just violence. As mentioned, we don't have the access to any of these emails, but what we know happened next is that Sharon did take the train that morning on October the 13th when she left her home. She took a train from Baltimore to Charlotte and there Robert waited for her and then he took her by car to his trailer in North Carolina. Just to put things into context, first of all, there was this article from Toronto Sun, which sounds equally garbage as the sun here in the UK. Sorry, Canadians, but it was just... It made me laugh like a couple of times, but it said like, okay, so she took a train from one destination to the other. The ultimate destination, though, would be oblivion. And this is just how they shut up. This is how they closed the article. I was like, okay... I see, I see what you've done there, Toronto Sun. But just to put things into perspective, because these were the two longest rides that you can even imagine. So she took that train to Charlotte at 9.15am and arrived there at 8.45pm. Again, what is she thinking on that ride? She has all the time to think, to reconsider, get off on a different station, take a train back, change her mind, but she doesn't. And also there, when Robert Glass picked her up, he drove her to that trailer that was another 80 miles away. So this is another long-ass ride where, I get what are they even talking about? Like, are they just talking about what they're going to agree to do to one another? Like, this seems like the most awkward ride that you can have. Like, hey, why slow hand? That is the question that I would have asked. And then ensured that that information is passed on. We need to know the important information of why. Why did this man choose these handles online? It's freaking me the fuck out. But once at this trailer, this is where Sharon will spend the last three days of her life. We pick up where we left off, and that is with the police finding the body. And when her body was dug up, her wrists were still bound with rope, as were her ankles. She had some scrapes or scratches on her breasts and her neck, and she still had the rope around her neck when she was found. So this medical examiner, Dr. John Butts, Listen, everything in this case is like on the verge of a joke and I can't deal with it no more. So Dr. Butts said the cause of death is consistent with strangulation. But the important thing that he said was that he didn't witness any signs of torture. So he didn't witness any proper resistance, but also didn't witness that she was tortured based on, you know, different scrapes or like scratches that he found in the last three days of her life. And meanwhile, as the autopsy is getting performed, the police is interviewing Glass, who said that he didn't kill Sharon intentionally, despite all of the emails showing that this is what they agreed on. So he didn't deny any of it. He just said it didn't happen intentionally. They were just engaging in breath play. Well, that's what it's known as today. It was erotic asphyxiation back in the day while having sex, and then during that death play, she was accidentally strangled with a nylon cord. But the medical examiner didn't find any marks to prove that she was strangled with this nylon cord, or just any marks on her neck to prove strangulation in the first place. Also, for strangulation to happen, it cannot happen accidentally. Like, don't buy into that bullshit if anybody sells you that. It at least requires, like, three to five minutes, depending on the person and depending on, like, level of strength and do you know what exactly you're doing? Like, what are you pressing on when it comes to somebody's neck? So I find this very interesting. I mean, I don't doubt that it happened, like, during some sex play, whether it's breath play or whatever, But I find it interesting in a way, like, if it's not, if the evidence is not on the neck, like, what else have they found on the scene? Because you have to think, this is, like, 90s. So they probably wouldn't speak as openly about things like BDSM. 
I'm thinking about gags here in particular. Like I'm thinking if it's not on the neck, then that means that they must have done some breath play where maybe both her nose and her mouth were shut for too long and the amount of time that both of them didn't know they should go beyond. Just because that would make sense to me and obviously BDSM is even today like a taboo topic. It's so negatively portrayed within the world of true crime and I just fucking hate it. So I was wondering like should I mention it but I just didn't see it mentioned anywhere but that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Let me know if you are more versed into BDSM community or just in general because saying like oh yeah there was nothing on the neck but she died by asphyxiation that is the only thing that I can come up with, but I might be completely wrong here. While interrogating him, the police actually discovered like he had no prior offenses. He only had a speeding ticket in 1988 and he was cited for having like an expired auto inspection sticker this year. So like literally just to do with DMV with driving. Nothing that would have indicated or led to this in any way. But then you gotta think that the internet was kind of in its very early days. I'm more thinking maybe they should have looked through garbage or like old wardrobes or stuff like attic or basement for like magazines of all the different sorts because yeah, there was children pornography. There was probably some kink in there as well that they just have not discovered before he turned to the internet and the online world. At first, Glass was actually charged with first-degree murder for her death. But the prosecution managed to change it to voluntary manslaughter. As we know, again, because there are questions of consent and there's 900 emails on their computers to confirm it. So more than three years after Sharon's death, in year 2000, he entered a guilty plea. So he pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and he also pled guilty to six counts related to the child pornography discovered on his computer. He was sentenced... This is such a mistake. He was sentenced to serve 36 to 53 months for killing Sharon and 21 to 26 months for multiple counts of sexual exploitation of a minor. So he somehow got even less for the child pornography than this. But yeah, all of them are minor. So just a couple of years for him to serve in prison. But if you're enraged by that, wait for a split second. Because after serving only two years of his sentence for these charges of killing of Lopatka and the child pornography, he was scheduled to be released from prison in 2002. But just two weeks before his release date, he had a heart attack and he died at the age of 51 within the prison. So that was awkward, but I haven't seen anything suspicious because you know how my brain works. I'm like, oh, was it really a heart attack? Or was it somebody making it appear like it was a heart attack? But actually serving him the same amount of justice because if they discovered the child pornography, he would have been the bottom feeder in this freaking prison. Like, people do not condone this kind of shit. There are absolutely, like, no speculations on this online, so... I just have to accept that he died of natural causes and that karma got to this bitch. Now, when it comes to Sharon, well, how did she get to the point of no return? Sharon was born as Sharon Rina Denberg, and she was born to parents who were Orthodox Jews, very active within their congregation. She was born in September 1961. Her parents wanted her to be involved into this congregation, into this Jewish synagogue as well, so she would sing in school choir, but also she was very active in sports. She was perceived as a normal child by everybody that knew her at the time. Her classmates actually said in the aftermath that she was as normal as you can get. One of her classmates actually said, what I want people to know is the woman I knew was not crazy in the slightest, that she was always a happy person, she was bubbly, she was on volleyball and field hockey teams, and in junior and senior years of her schooling, she was also a nurse's aide, a library aide, and continued singing in the schools and the church choir. 
I just want to make a note on this as normal as they can get. You never know what people's kinks are unless they're literally publicly super open about them. Like, I just find that so, so bizarre. Like, oh yeah, they're normal. There's nothing weird in their life. First of all, it's not freaking weird to be into different shit in the bedroom. But like, also... Yeah, would she have really shared it with you? Her parents are in this synagogue. They're like important people in this freaking church. You think like she's gonna go around and be like, hey, actually, I'm into these things. Also, she was still sort of like in her high school days living with her parents. She probably wasn't even into the kinky stuff yet. Like wasn't even like exploring that part of the world because she maybe didn't know it existed because she was still sheltered, which is gonna come into play. Just wanted to make a note on that because it enrages me when people are like they were as normal as they can get you're like yeah do, do people know what you like in bed probably not because you seem like a person that is not telling people what their freaking kinks and fetishes are okay you go on move on with your missionary life you go move on with your benedict cumberbatch of, of lives okay you, you see his face and you know he's only into missionary there's no debate <laughs> There's no debate. This guy ain't fucking the shit out of anybody. Okay. If Benedict Cumberbatch comes to sue your podcast, Maya, it's on you. It's on you. How did we get here? Truly the question of every single one of these podcast episodes. How did we get to Benedict Cumberbatch from Orthodox Jews? Just after finishing high school, so around the age of 18, she married the construction worker named Victor. But her parents kind of disowned her from this point on technically. Because, you see, Victor was Catholic, and this was very much no-no for her family of Orthodox Jews, so they didn't fully support it. But from everything I've read, it kind of seemed like Sharon actually left the family life and just married whoever came along first, technically, just for the sake of getting away from her parents. So this wasn't like the marriage out of love. She literally got the first chance to get married when she was 18 and she was out of there. Why I say that? Because her friends said that this was not a happy marriage. They described it as a way of breaking away. Victor and Sharon had no kids. And while Victor was working in an office environment, Sharon stayed at home. But she wasn't idle. Nah, Sharon was anything but freaking idle. In 1995, she said, okay, why don't I turn to the internet? Hey, is this new thing? I can make some easy money on the internet. And back then, it was truly that easy. At first, she started with a website saying that she was selling home decor guides. She would be paid around $50 for ads, so like writing and rewriting somebody's copy to make it look better online. This copy would say, for example, how to glamorize your walls without messy wallpaper or hiring expensive decorators. Or, easy sew and no sew home decor projects that anyone can do. Transform any room in your house into a decorator's showcase. Do we just say she's good, you know? You know, I studied journalism, trust me. <laughs> And one of these days, she made a new friend called Diane, who just lived a couple of houses from her, and the two of them put together this 30-page booklet on home decorating and country crafts, and they called it Dion's Secret of Home Decorating Guide. Diane also went to say that the person who was killed was not the person that she knew, because Sharon was always a happy and bubbly person. On top of this business, she would also run websites where she would sell psychic readings. And it was never known whether or not she was truly psychic, whether she had any powers. It was more like she was just using the internet to get some money from these sales. And this is when I truly think she realized she could be anybody on the internet. Because this is really when the tables have turned a bit. Hi, my name is Nancy, a message that she would post in the area on the internet where sexual erotica was the main topic would read. She would say she is 25, she has blonde hair, green eyes, she is 5 foot 6 and weighs 121 pounds. On these boards she would ask, is anyone out there interested in buying my worn panties or pantyhose? This is not a joke or a wacky internet scam. I'm very serious about this. If you're serious too, you can email me. And then she would leave an email. 
She was, of course, not five foot six or 121 pounds. Also, this is very specific. I don't think a single woman would go out and be like, I'm 121 pounds. In fact, they'd be like, more to it, I'm 119 like, or 120. You know, they would not go over. They'd rather go under. But no, this was not her real age, looks, height, weight. None of that. She realized she can be whoever the fuck she wanted to be. And people who are petite, small, skinny might just sell their dirty underwear better. Hey, she was doing the Orange is the New Black before Orange is the New Black ever existed. Up until a certain point that we reach here, I kind of respect what she was doing. I'm not gonna lie to you. Listen, there are people that have done like OnlyFans before. OnlyFans were like even a freaking idea in somebody's brain. And to those people, that that is scary. <laughs> that is scary. Just go online and sell your pictures of your freaking feet. Oh my god, yesterday I went on freaking TikTok and I was just, just scrolling and came up to somebody's live. <laughs> and they were literally just on bed showing their feet. And I was like, is this what this app is turning into? Because I truly cannot. If TikTok turns into just like lives where people show up their feet, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with like internet as a whole. <sighs> there's nothing, there's nothing sacred to you people. And on August the 2nd, so just around three months before she would meet with Robert Glass, she would post stuff like, Do you dare enter the land of the giantess, where men are crushed like bugs by these angry yet gorgeous giant goddesses? So here she's saying she's actually giant. So she goes from like one to the complete opposite. Then she went into something where I'm like, okay, I cannot possibly condone this. So under the pseudonym Nancy Carlson, she shared pictures of women who seemed to be unconscious or just drugged or hypnotized in some way. And these women were then engaging in sexual acts. These posts would read, Hi, my name is Nancy. I just made a VHS video of actual women willing and unwilling to be knocked out, drugged, under hypnosis and chloroformed. Never before has a film like this been made that shows the real beauty of the sleeping victim. There's no proof that she has recorded this herself, so she probably downloaded like these disturbing videos from like a website and then posted it as if they were their own so yeah there are certain parts of her online life that are just not to be condoned that kind of like verge on where robert glass was with his child pornography and you're like yeah like i respected you until this point and now it's all just kind of gone so, like, why? Like, I understand that there's, the, there's desperation for money, but then the ethical boundaries somehow need to meet that. Sharon we met in October was that Nancy online. She just continued asking people to customize bondage fantasy for them, again on a VHS tape, charging $100 and above for them to enjoy this privately in their own homes. Just before she started chatting with Robert Glass, she also would post messages in the online group that was focused on cannibalistic sex, saying she was looking for somebody who would force-feed her until she more than doubled in size, reaching the goal of weight of 475 pounds. She claimed she was very serious, yet again achieving this goal, and she would even relocate to that person's location if they were to force-feed her on a daily basis until she would reach her goal weight. But in all of these ads, there was a single pattern. Nancy, or Sharon, would state that she was always looking for a single participant, as in for somebody who was single, because... As per her words, she didn't look to break up any marriages. And it was during these days that she was searching more and more just the boards on sex, on fetishes, on S&M, on bondage, that she encountered another person, actually, that engaged in this talk with her. But this person kind of alerted the rest of the sexual fetish community because they felt concerned because Sharon, under different pseudonyms, would say that she had the fascination with being tortured until death. So the sexual fetish community was kind of like concerned 
feeling like this is not what this community is all about. But then Sharon fired back and she said she doesn't want to feel like somebody is giving her sermons. So she's like, no, actually this is what I'm interested in. So you can stay and chat with me or you can go to, you know, more PG kind of topics. There is actually an account of these different people that she did arrange to meet up like when her husband was at work and there was this man that she actually met up with but she was serious about being tortured to death and when he realized like oh she's actually like serious she wants me to do this he just backed out of this fantasy and Sharon just returned home but then one day two weeks before she was murdered she encountered somebody who was more than willing Robert Glass was making posts about inflicting pain and Sharon Lopalka was making posts about wanting to experience that same pain. So on one end, she was describing how she wanted to be strangled with rope as she is reaching orgasm and he would go in detail describing how he was to do exactly that. It was then that she met somebody willing to fulfill her fantasies that she decided to go ahead with it. And it just happens that here, decided to go beyond the point of no return meant deciding to die. So what were the motives on both ends? As I told you, since the beginning of this month, the articles, the literature on psychology, on consensual homicide is very limited. But this time I managed to find another longest article... Okay, I have different opinions on this article, but I mean, it was good for different perceptions to mine, let's say. Let's say that. The article is called The Phenomenology of Autoassassinophilia. And here, speaking about Robert Glass's motives, and in particular, consent, like we have done with every single episode, this article says something that I haven't read before, but I'm like, a lot of people will probably agree with this, and you know, I'm trying to offer a non-biased account. So, this article says, if persons of sound mind and adequate foreknowledge consent to engage in sex together, and do only the acts that both agree to, and do not wrongfully affect third parties, how could these acts be morally wrong? However, one person's harming another, and a person's allowing himself to be harmed is wrong even when both parties enter into the act voluntarily. So that's the part where we spoke about like the first episode, and I mean the second one as well, when it comes to consent is, why do they never report it? Like, they must know it is morally wrong because the person will end up dying and yet they never said to the police, they never tried to prevent any of it. Another thing on consent that came from this brilliant article and I haven't read it anywhere and it might have been like the piece that we were all looking for. Remember how in the first episode I spoke about the consent and how even today, like when it comes to different crimes such as rape, you know, how can you prove that this person actually hasn't withdrawn consent at at any point, you know, like, I mean, even if the act is in the process of happening, the person can still say no. Well, because we don't have emails available to us, but the police had in this case, they knew that she did consent at least to a certain point yet again. And we also had that note that she left for her husband, so she knew that she is not coming back. She knew that this is what she consented to, this is what she wanted. But Money in 1986 said, while the partners in the act may have shared a binding contractual agreement, the meaning of that agreement is not legally or socially sanctioned and its context has no bearing within law. Meaning the consent technically should not matter in these instances because it's not like they have went to the attorney, they have consulted their lawyers and have made this legally binding document where they have both signed, like the lawyer has tempted, and now that shit can be presented in court and said like, no, there's no hearsay here, this is what they have agreed by law. And I thought like that is interesting, like is that even an option for something like this today where somebody then technically can't draw consent because that contract would establish, no, this is what I consent to and I agree that I shall not withdraw consent on any of these points. 
which is kind of dangerous. But then is that the only solution in the instances of consensual homicide or assisted suicide? Because I presume when it comes to something like euthanasia, there must be some legally binding document where a doctor or a family member needs to like sign off and just agree like, this is what I'm agreeing with and I shall not be able to withdraw this consent by signing this document, something along those lines. Another thing this article pointed out that I haven't seen anywhere else, and that is particular euthanasia, actually. And they said, well, when it comes to like an ill, disabled person, somebody that is actually in the hospital where we are considering euthanasia or they have requested assisted suicide, we probe at his or her's mental state. We investigate specific pressures that are on them. We investigate social contexts like their family, etc. So in those instances, we do everything possible not just to put that person down. Whereas here, we don't do such things because the perp in these instances is just looking to fulfill their king. In this case, you could argue a sadomasochist or a sadist who is just looking to fulfill their king, somewhat luckily with a grown-up person, because we know that this could have turned much different when it comes to Robert Glass in this instance. And again, we have a victim who is not sharing this to anybody else for their mental health to be assessed. Like, they're not publicly speaking about, hey, I want somebody to assist me in my suicide. Or then their friend to be like, okay, actually, let's go to the therapist, see where this is coming from, see if we can actually do something to help you out. So we don't have the probing of like a person's mental health here to actually further understand it, which would be technically very helpful when deciding on why did they decide to do it. And if you think the motive is more to do with sadomasochism, well, according to Robert's Dictionary of Psychology, sadism is the association of sexual pleasure with inflicting of physical and mental pain upon another, including humiliation and exploitation. And people, well, actually around those years, around 99, have had different theories why some people would participate in the sexual behavior, like asphyxiation or sexual strangulation. And one theory suggests that either people are deprived of normal social sexual contact or their childhood trauma is causing these behaviors. But here, in this case, we have no evidence that these two have suffered any childhood drama, like none of the two. From that article, we can actually see that they're divided opinions. And in particular, there is this person called Nancy Ava Miller, who is a sex educator and a member of an SM support group. And she actually said that what these two have done isn't SM. These motives shouldn't be considered around being like sadist or masochist. Because the fundamental rule of this community, again, like people have tried to explain to Sharon online, is to keep the interaction safe, sane, and consensual. So here it's more about the talk of intent and dignity that we have touched upon in the both previous episodes. And that is the form that this type of murder will always result in objectification or instrumentality. Meaning these perps see the other human beings that they are torturing or having sexual act that results in consensual homicide devoid of humanity. They don't see them as humans. They just see them as objects that they are now at their mercy. And you can kind of say this is true in this case because, well, Robert Glass didn't really even care how Sharon really died. And then he just didn't even care to, like, remove the ropes of her or anything like that. He just dug like a shallow grave, put her in his yard, and then didn't even tell the police that she was actually on his property. So here we kind of can't say that he treated Sharon with like any dignity, even if this was consensual to begin with. Speaking further about the intent, for somebody not to report it to the police and want to go ahead, they have to see this person as an object to a certain degree. So in these instances, the victim here is the pure instrument of their pleasure. So to finalize the motives when it comes to him, it can be sadism or it can be just him like feeding his own king to a certain degree by agreeing that this was consensual 
again because of the emails because he would have the proof here but we just never get the answers as to why do they not report it to the police why do they not own up to it until they're literally behind bars and have no other option because they must feel inside that that is to a degree morally wrong what i find interesting is the autosassinophilia part of it because even though you experience sexual pleasure you experience orgasm through it you kind of experience that at the expense of a person that you see more as an object than a person dying or as that article in the beginning said expiring and yet again as much as you and me think it is consensual at least to a certain degree which does mean that they will get reduced sentence you have to think about the part of intent and dignity here and was that person dignified why is that never agreed in these instances like what happens in the aftermath and to answer that personally i think yet again it is because The person that wants to be assisted in their suicide, the victims in these cases, again, just want means to an end. They just want to die. They don't care about the aftermath, which probably does mean that they are have more mental health struggles than we think that they do. And the perps, well, they just want the means to an end to their king. They just think about getting that part over with, getting the pleasure themselves, and they're not thinking about... The dignity about disposing of these victims, about what actually comes after the sexual act. And here, when it comes to her, when it comes to Sharon Lopatka and her motives, well, I looked a bit into sexual masochism, but this article said to be diagnosed with it, a person must experience recurrent and intense sexual arousal from being beaten, humiliated, bound, or from some other form of suffering. And here we don't have anything saying that Sharon actually engaged exactly in that with other people. Like, I don't think they ever questioned anybody who she chatted with and supposedly met up with to say that they actually have gone through certain parts of the fetishes and sexual acts that she wanted to go through. And well, according to science, these types of urges, fantasies or behaviors must be present for at least six months and cause clinically significant troubles or difficulty in different parts of their life. So whether it is social, whether it is their job and other important areas. Here, she just wanted to escape her own life. She just wanted to escape, well, her parents first, then her marriage after that because she used that as the means to escape her parents in the first place and I think that's truly what is important when it comes to Sharon that she was just looking for an escape route and she found it in this and another thing is she has never done this before that we have the proof of but she has been online long enough to convince herself that she is actually into these bondage areas otherwise why would she be on these websites like downloading pictures and videos of other people experiencing different fetishes, just being gagged and bound, going through S&M, being unconscious. Why would she be, you know, online selling her own underwear? Why would she be doing any of this if she doesn't truly want to commit to it? And then there is the prevalence of escape, or rather, when looking at paraphilias and when looking at sexual masochism, because there's nothing universally accepted, but one prevalent thing is suggesting that paraphilias originate because these inappropriate sexual fantasies are forbidden. So, of course, if you're suppressed your whole life, you know, you grew up to be like this loyal Orthodox Jew, like going to synagogue, going to choir, committing to your religion, then your parents technically disowned you because you married somebody who was Catholic, so you ran to escape from that. But now you again want to escape from this life that you don't feel you belong to. Well, what do you turn to? Because you're suppressed your whole life. It's um, like the... um, case of Jennifer Penn that is in the archives here or on YouTube channel, I don't remember where I posted it, where this girl was going through tiger parenting, like strict parenting through her whole life, like no boyfriends, no social interactions, cannot like socialize with anybody, cannot do anything. And then one day she decided this is too strict, I actually cannot physically do this. So she started lying and then one lie turned to the next 
and in the end she ended up taking a hit out on her parents. So here we have the fact that actually these paraphilias and masochism in particular has been proven to be linked to just wishing to escape. And this is because through acting, through these fantasies, the individuals feel new, feel different, feel like they are actually this different person. They are not tied to their lives the way that everybody wants them to be tied. And well, if you're thinking, well, who did she have to escape from? You know, now she's with her husband, she could do whatever the hell she wants clearly online. He's not forbidding any of it. He is going to work and she's just doing her thing online. Yeah, true, but it's clearly escalating. It's clearly going more towards the sexual fantasy. It's going more towards her wanting to be another person, different people in terms of like sexual fantasies, like selling panties, selling VHS tapes with sexual fantasies on them, her herself participating in these different fetishes online, and her friends again describing her as this completely normal person when they meet her face to face. Which just means that that is actually who she wanted to escape from. She wanted to escape from being the Sharon Lopatka that the world saw and knew. When it comes to her motives, I think it is truly just her not being able to be who she wanted to be. Like her being suppressed her whole life. And then just suddenly one day discovering internet. Discovering that people do share her interests and seeing where she can push it. I don't think it was like in the first and the second case I covered this month where somebody was chronically depressed for months and years on end before the event. I think here it was more to do with the paraphilia. It was more to do with wanting to die during the sexual act and just being fixated on that. But then again, as I mentioned, we don't have the mental health documents on any of these people and that is truly something that needs to change that mental health assessments when it comes to people who want to go through the assisted suicides whether it is euthanasia or whether it is anything any form in general because then if that's spoken publicly about more people will be aware of whether or not this is something that they want to go through and then we also obviously have to mentally evaluate the perps to see okay why are you doing this like can you not just get enough of a king just looking at this weird shit online and just get it over with probably not again there's probably something more to that And also, I know I'm more liberal in a way when it comes to thinking about consensual homicides, even though now I covered three cases and I'm still like, well, technically, they did want this and what would have been an alternative? Like, I just can't stop thinking about that. Like, what is an alternative in any of these cases? They wanted to be in the presence of somebody else when they died in all these different circumstances. So I think rather than us judging that and finding it so controversial, the laws need to change in that area. Whether it is, like I mentioned in this case, having legally binding document in any of these cases for you to then present in court, which would help the perps get lower sentence in these cases if they have actually consented legally to XYZ, And would help maybe the victims either deter them from it because it is a contract and it is like actually on paper putting everything and putting that they can't withdraw consent at any of these points. But also, I think by making it a law, it would deter a lot of people just from doing it. Just because now it's not forbidden. It's not forbidden fruit. Like, it's just, you need to call up a lawyer if you want to do this. Otherwise, hey... The person risks, I don't know, a life in prison. I mean, I don't think we should blame the victims in these cases. But I think just by having a legal document, it would deter a lot of people from doing it in the first place. With the concept of like a contract, an actual legally binding document, well, now it's not really a forbidden hidden fruit. Now it's out there. It's exposed. So I do think like somebody needs to get on board if you're actually having really like strong opinions when it comes to consensual homicide you're like no they should rot in prison well then maybe you should get on board to like change the laws and maybe while at it we should change the laws on like rape or just different laws where consent is required when it comes to committing or not committing crime and deciding on that verdict on that line between the two 
because those have not been changed in like hundreds of years and they definitely do require some change in the first place. But that is the month of the consensual homicides done, the case of Sharon Lopatka done and dusted. And if you have any particular strong opinions to share on this case, or if you want to give me a lecture respectfully, you can do that by hitting me up on the podbam at gmail.com or thatbampod, both on Twitter and Instagram. And now look at the time. Oh, it's your next Zoom call time. You gotta, you gotta just, you gotta go. <laughs> and I have to let you go. And, uh, this week, I, I have nothing left, so I just want you to go into your next Zoom call and start up possible conversations around consent. Whether it is consensual homicides or whether it is just consent in general. Whether it is peer pressure when it comes to drinking booze with friends or whether it is something like consent during a sexual act and just see what those motherfuckers in those little squares are thinking about and then you judge them on it and you try to educate them because ultimately that is what this whole month has been about to just open our minds and see what requires change and see that maybe we shouldn't be as judgmental to other people and their decisions because there's always something behind it whether it is a kink or whether it is their mental health issues. And by educating your colleagues, by constantly talking about consent and educating people on it, you do what? You make this world a better place, one motive at a time. Bye, fuckers. Thinking, why are you so silly? You're so silly. Why, you silly skunk?